ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. This podcast is produced on the lands of the Bunurong, Bunwarung peoples of the Eastern Kulin Nation, as well as the Wurundjeri, Gadigal and Waramai people and people of the Kanemaluka. It's 1976. A doctor named Bob Brown and his friend Paul are floating down a river in southwest Tasmania on inflatable rafts. They're young, carefree and up for an adventure. We very early on had the first platypus surface next to us and you just paddle and the platypuses, they seem to be nonchalant about this. We had stories of spectacular cliffs and 100-foot waterfalls and all sorts of things. People used to go down the Franklin River using canoes or kayaks, but Bob's friend Paul had worked out this new technique using inflatable rafts, so they were testing it out. Every time we could hear the roar of the next rapid, we'd pull to the side and walk down. They'd have to deflate their raft, carry it around the rapid, and then blow it up again. It was both hard work and endless fascination. This is a remote part of the world, and they're not expecting to see anyone for the whole trip. But then, as they round a bend, they realise they're not alone. It were three men sitting by the side of the river, one with a shotgun and one with a fishing line. They all had seemed to have big hats on. We'd just been to see the film Deliverance. Deliverance is about a group of suburban men who escape their lives for a canoe trip down a dangerous river. They clash with some menacing river folk and there's a famous banjo duelling scene. So Bob Brown sees these guys in hats and he's hearing banjos in his head. And they stared at us as we went past and said, where are you going? We said, we're rafting down to the Gordon River, 70 kilometres that way. And between the three of them, one man said, well, you're bloody mad. That was it. They drift on. Both groups suss on what the others are doing there. They started out late, so it's not long before the sun is getting low in the sky. They set up camp on a sloping, rocky bank, and the night closes in. And we'd got a little rock-enclosed fire, had some dinner. They cook some unappealing dehydrated food, the kind that hits a plate with a splat. Then they go to bed. We got into our sleeping bags, and we're just going to sleep when... Bang! Bob's mind went straight to deliverance. We thought we were being put upon by the gents up the river. They freeze, but then there's just silence. So they slowly get out of their tents. Turns out that it was a rock from their campfire that had blown up as it was cooling down. It was a cold night and it exploded right next to the tent. <laughs> oh my God. So we finally got off to sleep and headed down to where the Franklin flows in. And as the days passed, the rest of the world just slipped away. The river's fern decked, the rapids are always bouncing. There's a white froth that gathers and, uh, and you see it tracing down on the river after rapids. And the water's honey-coloured. Here are fully 
grown Hewan pines, ancient, some of them more than a thousand years old. It gave that concept that's hard for us fast-moving modern human beings to relax and go back to the timelessness of it. For two weeks, they saw no sign of another person except a single light plane way off in the distance. No one. No one else. No sign of them. No fences, no farms, no factories, no towns, no streets. Just nature. Nothing prepared us for coming off the Franklin River and turning the bend into the Gordon. The Hydro were considering a new electric scheme, and this was the site of the proposed dam that had flooded the Franklin River. Suddenly, there were jackhammers, helicopters, barges, explosions going off, patches of vegetation torn away right up in the gorge wall where they were testing to see if they could anchor a dam there. Well, the future history of this place was writ large like the so recent history of Lake Pedder. That moment changed Bob Brown's life. It's the reason Australians know his name today. It was a cry to the heart. I came away with the most extraordinary challenge in my life ringing in my head. What are we going to do about this? Bob Brown is a big deal in Australian politics. He went on to become the first leader of the Australian Greens and his party has seriously changed the country's political landscape. But for a lot of locals who lived near the Franklin, like those men in the hats that Bob saw, they would come to see Bob and everything he stood for as a threat to their way of life. I'm Joe Lauder and this is Saving the Franklin. In this series, I'm looking back at one of the most significant environmental campaigns Australia's ever seen, the fight to save Tasmania's Franklin River. To find out, in a battle for the environment, what does it take to win? Last episode, I retraced the roots of the Franklin campaign right back to the 70s, when the Hydro Commission flooded Lake Pedder for electricity. It radicalised a bunch of young conservationists, or, as they were getting called, greenies. To stop the same thing happening to the Franklin River, they had to face the majority of Tasmanians, people who were less worried about the environment and more worried about the state's crumbling economy. Today's unemployment figures paint a grim picture of the situation in Tasmania. And there are, for those 4,000 young people unemployed, there are 78 jobs. Progress is progress and we've got to look to the future. Beggars can't be choosers. Tasmania the beggar, the Cinderella amongst its booming sister states. A Cinderella state, the poorest sister to Australia's mainland. I'm going to take you into the home of someone who wanted the Franklin Damned, who saw this dam as a new beginning for his community, who also lived with the river and loved it. Today, the campaign grows, the tensions rise, and the state government is forced to act. This is episode two. All right, from Brum. <laughs> We're on the road. 
How are you feeling as we head to this place that we've been hearing so much about? That's my producer, Pia Wursu. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to see it and I'm excited to be able to place to be able to place it mentally and in terms of like the landscape with all these stories. Tasmania might look like a little island on a map, but it is an incredibly long and windy drive to the west coast where the Franklin River is. We've driven from quaint farmland, past these stretches of button grass plains. And then as you get closer to the west coast, the landscape slowly changes to this dense, temperate rainforest. You really get an appreciation, even just driving at the moment where we are, of that, that concept of this being a wild place. Modern technology and stuff will just not have much of a place here. For a long time, the West Coast was pretty isolated from the rest of the state, and people who live there consider themselves West Coasters as much as Tasmanians. Today, we're going to visit Queenstown. It's a former mining town and the closest major town to the river. Welcome to Queenstown. Oh, wow. Okay, we're coming down a windy road, and it's pretty rocky. There's just there's not much vegetation, so it feels really, really sparse and kind of rugged. Yeah, so that's what people talk about when they are talking about a moonscape. So it's basically just the side of the hill is just gravel. The reason it's like that is because wood cutting, a fire, and then shitty copper mining practices from the early 1900s. Then the West Coast rains washed off the topsoil. And, well, a hundred years on, it's still not recovered. In the town itself, on one side you can see the bare orange hills and on the other side it's forest. It all gives off this high Sierra feel and then there's the colonial-style buildings. All right, we're here. Cool. All right, right on time. Wait, which way are we? Up here? Should we take our shoes off? I haven't changed a bit. Look at this. Yeah, that's sort of standard. To understand why so many people on the West Coast supported the Franklin Dam, you first have to understand how much they relied on mining and industry for work for as long as they can remember. When Brian Gardner shows us into his house, the first thing I notice is that he has a framed photo of those bare hills on his wall. Brian grew up in Queenstown and he now lives just down the road in Strawn. He's proud of his hometown and he's proud of those hills. But talk to him for more than a couple of minutes and you realise he loves the bush too. He always has. You come home from school, you go straight up to the bush, uh, you come home for tea uh, and then you go straight back out again. When we think of it nowadays, it, it, it was a dangerous time because we dug caves into the sandhills, two and three bedroom caves, you know, and we thought nothing at all of sleeping in them and digging a hole for putting the tin flue in so you could have a fire inside them, you know, and the smoke would get out. It was just a done thing. Everyone did it. Did you ever see or, like, notice any of the impacts from the copper mine when you were a kid? The creek that ran through Queenstown, you know, that was always a silver colour and it was like quicksilver when you touched it. We used to play in that. You, you wouldn't went anywhere near it nowadays because, you know, they say, oh, it's poison or that sort of stuff. We thought nothing of it. Even as a kid, Brian knew that the nearby mine, the Mount Lowell Copper Mine, was a beating heart of Queenstown. As far as the locals were concerned, a creek that ran silver was a small price to pay for what the mine provided. It virtually ran Queenstown. It employed everyone in Queenstown. When I was there, they had about 1,400 employees. They supplied the uh, butcher shop in town, supply stores, a swimming pool, uh, so all that sort of stuff 
they set up. They supplied housing. So when the copper mines started struggling, I mean, that must have been a disaster for Queenstown. That was the start of the decline of, of Mount Lyle and it just continued on from then. With 80% of the population dependent on the mine, closure would mean the end of Queenstown. Suddenly, locals who had lived there for generations found themselves without a future on the West Coast. The lifeblood of Queenstown was starting to drain. But then, a new hope appeared on the horizon. The Tasmanian government had plans to dam the river. More dams meant more jobs in a state which suffered the highest rate of unemployment in Australia. Remember the Hydroelectric Commission, a.k.a. the HEC or the Hydro? They're a public company, kind of like Australia Post is to the federal government. Not exactly a government department, but they still wielded a lot of power and potentially a lot of jobs. A lot of people were looking for work, and not just on the West Coast. The rate of unemployment was high right across the state. During the past 12 months, unemployment has risen by a massive 59%. In real terms, that's an extra 6,900 job seekers. The state's unemployment rate remains by far the highest in the nation. The Hydro was promising construction jobs and cheap power that would revitalise the area. West Coasters know that mines only promise life and then death. They don't last forever. And West Coasters have always lived with this. So in the back of the mind, there was always this concept that we need new industry. Can you tell me about how all the locals felt about the hydro potentially building some dams out this way? That provided the job opportunities. And people then, of course, saw it because they realised Mount Lyle was on the way down. So how did you feel about it, even though it had mean, you know, flooding the Franklin? I was for it. I saw it as being a major economical boost to the coast. You have something else besides mining for people who lived here. People saw it as an opportunity to stay on the West Coast and to still be employed. And that's what happened to Brian. Later on, he started working for the Hydro in Queenstown. As Brian and I were chatting, I kept thinking back to those guys in hats on the riverbank and Bob Brown and his friend in the raft passing by just metres away. For me, this picture paints the battle lines. On one side, there's these locals just trying to get by. And on the other side are these young campaigners who'd come in trying to do what they thought was best to protect the land. In many ways, they were both there because they loved that place. I believe I'm a conservationist because you've got that concept of the bush and we use it differently. We use the bush for recreation, for getting a feed, for living in and for getting our lifestyle from. And that's the difference. People from the city use the bush to visit They bushwalk or they go out and sit in a park somewhere and have a barbecue or a picnic. Well, we live in the bush 24 hours a day. Our families grew up in the bush and we still teach them the values of the bush. I fish, I get wood for the fire, I live off the land, I fed my family off the land. So I do it to protect and maintain what's there because if I don't, then it's not going to be there for me to use again. I'm not a conservationist where I believe to save it, you need to lock it up. A greenie is someone who doesn't see the benefits of managing it to service a range of opportunities. And that, to me, is they come in and they say, oh, no, we can't do that, we've got to close it down. 
I can hear how deeply Brian feels about this. The tensions between economic needs and the value of the natural environment. It brings up strong emotions on both sides. More power equals more jobs. It sounds so sensible, doesn't it? Karen Alexander is a young hiker who was furious that the beauty of Lake Pedder wasn't enough to save it. She became a core campaigner to save the Franklin. It just sounds like, well, of course it would mean more jobs. Just the problem was the evidence wasn't there. The Franklin Dam wouldn't even produce huge amounts of electricity. This power will only be 180 megawatts, which is a tiny amount. I mean, 180 for this cost and this destruction. That's equivalent to a small wind farm today. Victoria was building a coal-fired power station at the time that could create 12 times as much electricity. Karen joined forces with a whole group of conservationists, including schoolboy activist who'd grown up during the PETA campaign, Kevin Kiernan. By 1976, they'd formed a new organisation to represent all the environmental campaigns in Tasmania, one that would lead the Franklin fight. I proposed let's just have this thing and call it the Wilderness Society so we can embrace these other, other campaigns as well. Karen Alexander helped to set up a Melbourne branch of the movement. We just would get together and meet, all right, what do we need to talk about? What can we do? We need to raise awareness. We need to find funds. We need to understand what's happening politically. We need to be strategic. Stepping into the role of leader as the campaign heated up is someone you might remember, the doctor from the rafting trip down the Franklin. You know, da-lang, 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 da-lang. Yeah, Bob Brown. It was a coven or a collection of young, invigorated environmentalists and defiance was in the air. We are not going to allow Lake Petter to happen to this great wild river system. Jeff Law, another young so-called greenie, had also rafted the Franklin and fell in love with the place. He dived right into the campaign when he got home to Melbourne. It was full of young people. You know, some of my friends from university were there. What was the feeling on the ground there and what was it like for you campaigning? Well, there was a sense of momentum on the mainland. Uh, Branches were proliferating. I met Jeff on a trip to Hobart, Tasmania's capital, and he struck me as the kind of guy who was up for anything when he was young. He wasn't prepared at all for his trip down the Franklin, so his raft slowly deflated the whole way down. Still, as soon as he finished, he joined the campaign in Melbourne and was helping out wherever he was needed. You know, envelopes, folding leaflets, or in one particular case creating a giant inflatable platypus to launch onto the Yarra River. Yeah, you heard that right. It was one of those late-night ideas, you know, the ones where you're on the way home in a car and then someone says... What we need is, we need this great big platypus, wouldn't that be the most amazing thing? And then someone else says... Oh, I reckon we could do that. Let's just, well, let's do it. Let's do it. And before you know it, you're making a 12-foot-long platypus. It's one thing to have the idea... But to make it is a whole other thing. I found myself at 4am painting eyelashes on this uh, platypus. We'd worked all night on it, um, gluing the thing, and I just didn't believe it was going to inflate. I thought, this is ridiculous. An inflatable giant platypus, as if when we put a vacuum cleaner into reverse and stuck it up the rear end of this uh, platypus, which suddenly inflated before our eyes and was this almost living thing. We had, you know, tears rolling down our cheeks just from the hilarity of it all. His name was Franklin, 
and Franklin was ready for his first public appearance. All Franklin needed were people to animate him. It became very hot and you're responding to these instructions, forward, 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 wiggle those arms, wiggle those flippers, wiggle the flippers, shuffle, shuffle forward. Then it went all over the place because you could pack it up. It got taken up to Sydney, it got taken to Canberra and again for rallies. This late night idea was becoming an icon and the cause was gaining momentum. The group realised that the most passionate campaigners were the ones who'd seen the river for themselves. But they couldn't force everyone to raft the Franklin. So on Bob Brown's next trip, he filmed it. He wanted other people to see its beauty. We now take you on a summer journey down the Franklin with a party of four using rubber rafts. The only member of the group with any rafting experience is Bob Brown, who successfully negotiated the Franklin River last summer. Karen Alexander planned a public screening of the film at Story Hall in Melbourne. It's a stately colonial building right in the centre of the city. Well, I remember we went and looked at it and, oh my gosh, this holds about 700 people. Are we going to get 700 people? Well, the place was packed 15 minutes before the meeting. You know, it was standing room only and we were just blown away. And it was so exciting. For me, I think that's the moment I thought, oh, we're going to win this. Tasmanian politics was still firmly pro-dam on all sides, and so was the local media. But the pressure was mounting. As kids, you know, we could always recite all the power schemes, you know, Tangatina, Wayatina, Poatina, etc. It was like a, a poem. This is Terry Orlick. As a kid, his dad worked for the Hydro. But I tracked him down because Terry's someone who can give me the lowdown into how the Franklin River blew up the Tasmanian government. So all in all, about 17 years in politics, state and federal. They keep referring to me as a tribal elder. Oh, nice. Yeah, I was going to say elder statesman. I feel like that's another one that comes up a lot. Uh, yes, they, they do. <laughs> you couldn't go anywhere, really, without meeting someone who was a hydro kid, as they called it. Can you elaborate a bit more on, um, like, a hydro kid and what it means, I guess, back then as well, if you had a family member working hydro and kind of like that family connection to the hydro? Well, it was very important because um, the hydro had a history of driving industrialisation in Tasmania. In fact, it, it was often described as the alternative government. Terry was elected as a Labor MP in the late 70s. Not long after, Tasmania got a new Premier, Doug Lowe. I think it's essential that uh, all political parties have regard to the needs of youth and uh, to the... Uh, the thoughts of you. At 35 years old, Douglow became the youngest ever leader of the state and in charge of a Labor government. He was a handsome man. As my wife said, he was the son that every mother would have liked to have had. You know, polite, good-looking, family man. We thought it was going to be a new era. That new era turned out to be a political crisis. No government in Tasmania had ever said no to the hydro's recommended power scheme. It had a long history and I was very aware of what it had brought to the state. By the time we got to 1979-80, we were pretty aware that out there there was a very strong conservation movement and that feelings that were, were already being generated that could enter danger territory. 
On the one hand, we had a massive conservation movement that was never going to lose again. And on the other hand, we had the big industries and the hydro, and we were stuck in the middle. The government was considering two options for expanding hydropower in Tasmania. There was the Hydro's Pick, a dam that would flood the Franklin, or another dam, a compromise, further up the river system in the southwest. The compromise would spare the Franklin, but it would still flood a nearby river and another wild landscape. The government was hoping it would be enough to appease the Franklin campaigners. I rang Doug and said, um, what are you going to do? And he said, I'm, I think we've got to go for the Gordon below Franklin. That's the option that would flood the Franklin. Because if we don't, uh, we're going to be up against political forces that will cause us to be out of government. The Premier could see that the Franklin might end his political career, but he was determined to be fair. So he called a meeting to weigh the evidence on both sides. Remember, any dam would be funded by taxpayer money. And at this point in time, the Hydro estimated that the Franklin Dam would cost $366 million. We knew we were making a very big decision, probably the biggest decision that a Tasmanian government was ever going to make. It sounds like as a politician, he approached this issue and the Hydro very much, it's fair to say, from a fairly neutral position and was very ready to do a very fair assessment of the Hydro. Oh, absolutely. The Hydro will not walk in and just put it on our table and say, here, here's the next scheme, give it a big tick. And so the longest meeting of Terry's career kicked off. At this meeting, both sides of the fight would have one last chance to convince the government that they were right in an ornate room in Parliament House. You always felt that you were stepping into history when you went to that room. Around the walls were traditional paintings. There was enough money in those paintings, I think, to to buy Tasmania. This is 1980, remember. So instead of sitting around the table in order of seniority, they had smokers at one end and non-smokers at the other. As we got deeper into it, the whole table was full of maps, charts, histographs, uh, you name it. It was all there. On one side, there were ministers who were literally wearing the hydro's colours. They had these gaudy, striped hydro ties with a lightning bolt on them. And then there were the others, like Terry, who thought the hydro's claims about jobs should be taken with a grain of salt. I remember the hydroelectric commissioner, Russ uh, Ashton at the time, getting a little hot under the collar because he was getting lots of questions from around the cabinet table. And then he apologised and said, "Um, look, you'll have to forgive me, I'm not used to this type of, I think he used the word interrogation. The whole crux of that argument on that side was that we we need this power and then we'll have industrialisation and then we'll have jobs. That's absolutely correct. The hydro had always sold its schemes on the basis that these tight contracts to big industry would bring jobs to the state and retain jobs in the state. Now, we had no guarantee that that was going to continue. We needed to make sure that it wasn't just a vague promise. We weren't going to give an imprimatur to the hydro. There weren't any even letters of intent. We needed tight contracts. The meeting just kept going, hour after hour, right into the early morning. And then they were right back there early the next day. 
The debate didn't even stop for meals. They just moved it to the cafeteria. And we were guzzling our food because we didn't have much time and we needed to get to the point. People are talking and maps are coming out. I thought it was ironic that uh, our lunch was provided courtesy of the Hydroelectricity Commission's canteen next door. And it was only when I got back I thought, well, that's interesting that, you know, uh, the hydro had provided us with lunch because they weren't providing us with the facts. Brutal. Now it was time to hear from the other side, the anti-dam camp. The leader of the Wilderness Society stepped up to speak. Bob Brown was opposed to any dam, but he knew the Cabinet would probably, at best, pick the compromise proposal, the Gordon above Olga scheme. I said this, if you go for flooding the Franklin, the whole country will oppose you. If you go for the Gordon above Olga scheme, it'll be us left to oppose you. I don't remember too much else except coming out of the meeting feeling I hadn't been strong enough. The Cabinet had heard from both sides. After two days, the meeting was finally finished. But a decision hadn't been made. The Cabinet was split and the future of the Franklin was hanging in the balance. After the meeting finished, Terry rushed off to a movie screening where the Premier was due to speak. When the film stopped, someone in a beanie got up and shouted, Save the Franklin. And the crowd just went berserk. They clapped and cheered. Doug was plainly nonplussed and he hadn't seen, I think, the strength of people's reactions uh, who wanted to save the Franklin. Terry was knackered and made a break to leave early. He'd borrowed Doug Lowe's government car to get home. And his, his driver was there. As soon as I got in the car, he said, you've got to build that bloody dam, mate. So I thought, well, this is great, isn't it? Within the week, Cabinet announced its decision. The Tasmanian Labor government today announced it had decided to go ahead with the damming of the Gordon River above the Olga, which will save the Franklin River from inundation. This was huge. The state government had spared the Franklin. The campaigning had worked. And the hydro? They weren't happy. Emerging from a lengthy party caucus meeting, the Premier, Mr Doug Lowe, dubbed the decision a sensible compromise which would meet Tasmania's development needs and the objections of conservationists. For the first time in its history, the all-powerful hydro had lost. The government was confident this compromised decision would put the issue to bed. The Franklin had been spared and a new dam would still be built. Win-win, right? Do you think that the entire conservation movement will accept the decision? I'm sure that they're united in celebrating the biggest conservation victory ever in Tasmania. Wrong. You might have thought, this is the end of the episode. You might have thought, hmm, the government's decided. Now it's done and dusted. The podcast is over. The Franklin is saved. Nope. Not so fast. Obviously, they got together in the conservation movement and decided that we didn't need any dams at all. I hadn't been strong enough. We weren't in the business of trading what was left of a world-class wilderness to get a political fix. Our job was to advocate for nature. See, the environmentalists, they had momentum. And so they came out and publicly said, you know what, we want no dams. And then the state's pro-dam people were like, 
Bloody hell, we were banking on this massive cash cow coming in. Now it's been scaled down. We're not happy either. So no one was happy and stuck in the middle was the Premier. To settle the issue once and for all, Duglow decided to let the public choose with a referendum. Every Tasmanian would vote between the two potential dams. The catch was there wasn't a no dams option. Duglow had made a lot of political enemies through this whole process. And despite being the state's most popular premier, those enemies decided to use this moment of division to pounce. That night, unionists in particular uh, came into the parliament and they were one by one calling uh, various Labor members into an office and one... quote was, mate, you better vote against Lowe because you can make history or be history. Direct quote. I don't believe in knocking off premiers. In some cases, I call it almost thuggery. And some weakened and they signed that night a petition to the premier saying, we've lost confidence in you. We wish you to stand down. The drama began just prior to a regular meeting of the Parliamentary Labor Party in Hobart this morning. Mr Lowe was handed a letter signed by 12 members of caucus expressing no confidence in him as leader and calling for his resignation. The letter was handed to Mr Lowe 20 minutes before the meeting. When they held that vote about whether to keep Doug Lowe as Premier, what was the atmosphere like in the room? There was this silence when the results were called out people realise we've lost a Premier. Then they call for the next Premier, and it's quite brusque like that. They say, um, anyone who's nominating to be Premier, and you stand up. Doug turned to me and said, why don't you stand up? And I recall saying, I don't step on dead bodies. He took it with grace thanked the party for the opportunity and he walked out and basically walked out of the party. I was extremely angry because I realised that we'd been done over by the Hydro, the outfit that my father had worked for for years and years and years. We'd been done over by some in the business community who just used their money to get what they wanted and we'd betrayed ourselves in the Labor movement. That was it. Duglow was gone. All because of the Franklin debate. These days, dumping political leaders over environmental issues seems pretty familiar to me. We've had a decade of it. But back then, this was unheard of. The referendum was still on. Bob Brown would make sure a no-dams option was on the ballot, one way or another. We put a colour brochure into every letterbox in Tasmania, write no dams on your ballot paper. And it worked. About one in every three Tasmanians did just that. Instead of choosing one of the options on the ballot paper, they just wrote no dams. The people had spoken and the defiance had spread wide in the public. And, of course, we were buoyed by the results. That was the biggest informal vote in global democratic history. It was the biggest write-in that anyone had, had ever, that, that a community had ever done uh, in a major referendum. 
Imagine today a third of people choosing to vote informally in a referendum. But the conservationists were still outnumbered. In the final count, over half of Tasmanians, 55% had voted to flood the Franklin. And the politicians had their mandate. The Franklin Dam was going ahead. Environmentalists were facing a race against time to stop the dam's construction. What they didn't know was that on his way out the door, Doug Lowe, the deposed Premier, knife still in his back, had left behind a ticking time bomb of his own. In the dying hours of his premiership, he'd put his signature on a very important bit of paper. It was a letter to the Prime Minister of Australia. On the night of the Long Knives, when he was politically assassinated, uh, he had signed off on the letter to Fraser and it was sitting on his desk. And a member of his staff took the letter off the desk, put a stamp on it, put it in an envelope and sent it to Prime Minister Fraser. The letter was asking the Australian government to seek World Heritage listing for a large chunk of Tasmania's southwest, including the Franklin. This would mean that the whole area would be protected by international law. With this letter and the quick actions of a staffer who picked it up and sent it, the battle over the Franklin would go international. The Prime Minister took a very deep and close personal interest. We took umbrage at, again, another section of white Tasmania willing to use our history to their advantage for their political ends. I remember feeling quite sick, physically sick, that this wasn't going to be successful. He escalated and it split families. People resented people from outside coming in and saying, you should be doing this. It became, you're with it or you're not. This series is reported and hosted by me, Joe Lauder. Pia Wersu is our producer and reporter. Bethany Atkinson-Quinton is our supervising producer. Tynan King is our researcher. Our executive producer is Claire Rawlinson. Engineering by John Jacobs and our original theme music by Casey Holford. Special thanks to Tim Roxburgh. If you're enjoying Saving the Franklin, I reckon you'd love the ABC podcast Days Like These. It's about the days that go spectacularly wrong or go brilliantly right. It's about the risks we take and the decisions we make. Here's a short clip. A woman turning 30 is confronted by her 14-year-old self in a very public way. My heart just dropped. A man finds fame in a dog suit. As I go in to put the stupid black nose on and just drag out this dog suit again, I just said, this is a bad joke gone too far. There's a story about a family in a religious cult drawing a line on how they want to live. As a little girl, I used to have nightmares and would go into mum and dad's bedroom and mum would say, oh, for goodness sake, go back and pray to Jesus. (laughs) We look back at the Sydney lockout laws and what you do when your whole world is suddenly out of reach. And Fran Kelly's inner fangirl has a very awkward moment. It's in nowhere creepy. It's just excitable. That's Days Like These. Search for it now or find it in the ABC Listen app.